0: This is Church of the Resurrection in Whedon, Illinois. Think back with me for a moment to elementary school. And when the teacher asked for a volunteer for something, do you remember that? The, when all the kids' hands would go up in the air, when everyone was excited to be called on, and then college happened and no one wanted to raise their hands. But all the kids are excited. They're like, pick me, pick me, pick me. We all want to be chosen. It's just there's this human desire to experience Uh, To blessing, to be in on something, to be picked, that that you're important and that you matter. But what if I were the teacher and what if I said to you after I chose you that I've chosen you to be an outcast? I've chosen you so that the other kids are not going to want to play with you. You're going to be on the playground and receive a cold shoulder. You would not be happy about that at all. You'd be like, that's not what chosen means. Chosen means I'm special. Chosen doesn't mean that I'm an outcast. But that's almost the invitation that we get in the pages of the Bible. Because we have this story where God chose a people, starting with Abraham and his family and continuing with Israel, and they were chosen by him. But because of their chosenness, they were viewed as strangers. Not just viewed as strangers, they were strangers because he called them, to mirror reflect the character of this God. He called them to be what the Bible word Bible the term the Bible uses is holy, set apart, showing his character, not to not to be these arbitrary rules of a of a picky God, but to actually embody who he is and show who he is to the world around them. And so in these different places, whether it was in exile in, As- in Assyria, or Babylon, or before that in Egypt, the story of God's people was a story of being a stranger in a foreign land, not being home in the place where you're living. Now we're moving into a series for the next four weeks that we're calling Living as Exiles. And this is in 1 Peter, the story of 1 Peter, the letter that he wrote to Gentile Christians. And you probably noticed in the beginning of that reading how he addressed these Christians. He addressed them as elect exiles, chosen strangers, if you will. That somehow, it, because of Jesus in his life, they've been born into and grafted into this family of Israel and called to mirror the character of this God to the world around them. And when they do that, they're almost guaranteed that the cultures around them will view them with suspicion, will push them to the margins. They'll experience hostility, and that's part of living into this chosenness. Now, the church is not surprised by this because throughout history and even around the world today, she's living in these realities. And it hasn't been that, that much so in Western Christianity, but it's becoming more and more like that. And so we look at this letter written to these Gentile Christians, but also taking that as being written to us today, that Peter's writing to us and showing us what it's like to live as strangers in your land. And we're going to look at four different components of this in the next four weeks. Today, we're going to start by looking at hope. The hope that we've been given as followers of Jesus. Now, I'm sure that many of you, if you are aware at all of what's going around in the world around us, that we live in a culture that desperately is void of hope. It desperately wants hope. The suicide rates in our country are the highest since World War II. We have more than 130 people a day dying of opioid addictions. More than half of Americans report that they're often lonely. One fifth of us suffer from major depressive disorders. You could almost say that we're experiencing a disease of despair in our culture. So what's the answer to that despair? It seems to be hope. Oprah tells us that, social scientists tell us that, the scriptures tell us that, but what are we talking about? Are we all on the same page? Are we talking about the same thing? But this is where our passage meets us today, and it plunges us deeply into the hope of God. So let's open our Bibles together. If you didn't bring a copy of your scriptures, there are Bibles underneath the seats, and if you use one of the Bibles that we are providing for you, it's page 1014. It's extra important, I think, for you to look at this today because this passage is actually one really long sentence in Greek, and it has participles all over. And it can be, we can get lost a little bit in this type of prayer because Peter situates hope and what he's saying about the hope that we have in the Lord in a, in a prayer of praise. He's not just describing in a, in a systematic way or bullet point way what our hope is. It's actually the, in the best, the most appropriate way of even talking about this hope is in the context of praise to the Lord. Let's read, uh, I'll read verses 3 through 5 again and then we're going to stop. in the last time. That's a lot, right? I, I feel kind of like we're on a big family vacation together and I'm driving the 600 passenger van and we're driving up this, to this overlook and we're in the Rocky Mountains and we've come to this precipice and there's a panoramic view of the mountains and they're breathtaking. This feels like that kind of passage. There's so much here for us, that is essential for us in talking about what our hope is as Christians. So in this panorama, we could get really lost because it is lofty. But I want to suggest that we can see at least two things here. First we see that hope is a promise, that there's something in the future that that we can latch onto and that we can hold, because number two, hope is present in that We live as Christ followers between two different resurrections, and this instructs us how we are to live between those two. We're born again to a living hope, not a dead hope, not a dead end hope, not in hope that has no life in it, but that animates our very lives as Christians. Peter uses three words here to describe the same reality. First, he talks about this living hope. Then he moves on and talks about it as an inheritance with certain characteristics. Then he goes even further in verse 5 and calls it a salvation. So hope, inheritance, salvation, they're all describing this reality that we live in as followers of Jesus. What is this hope like? What is this inheritance that we have? It's imperishable, so it doesn't die. It's not subject to decay. It's not subject to death. It's undefiled. It's not tainted by sin. It's not tainted by any of the the evil acts that people tend to do or the power that keeps people enslaved to sin, and it's unfading. It's not subject to losing its luster or growing thin, or losing beauty. This already provides us hope. Because so many of the things that we hope for now are the opposite of this. Things that are dying, things that are perishing, things that are tainted by sin. But first let's talk about what our hope in Christ is not. And some of these things are surprising because as followers of Jesus, sometimes we don't, we're not very clear on what exactly our hope is. First, it's not a vague life after death. It's not just an existence after we die. It's more than that. Second, it's not going to heaven when you die. It's not a future destiny that's in our current space-time continuum. Heaven is God's realm and His realm of activity and work. Earth is our realm of where we live. And there's overlap to some degree. But this is being kept for us in this other realm, God's realm. It's not a disemb- our, our hope is not a disembodied soul shedding our body so that our soul can be free in some sort of platonic or Gnostic ideal, that our bodies are bad, and so we just need to get rid of our bodies. Our bodies aren't a prison, but there's something that happens to our bodies. And we see this first in the person of Jesus, that God raised him from the dead. What what was his resurrection body like? Well, he ate, he was hugged by people, he walked around, he had a physical body, but it was a transformed body because he was just appearing through locked doors, and it it was different in some ways. Paul describes our resurrection bodies in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, You can turn there if you want, but I'll read it for you. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 42. So, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. Same word that we just had in our passage with Peter. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It is sown as a natural body, it's raised as a supernatural body. So our bodies are transformed with the old materials, but they're, they have new properties. It's a transformed physicality. But here's the main point, one of the main points here. God is not just throwing it away. He's not saying, Ugh, that, was, that didn't work out too well. I'm going to wrinkle that one up and throw it to the side. He doesn't abandon creation. He remakes creation. And the good news for us here is that what God did for Jesus at Easter, He does for us now in our bodies, in the very depth of our being, this new life has been planted in us and is growing, and one day, it will bear fruit when Jesus is revealed, and we're going to move in that direction here in just a minute. But We have hope, not just that Jesus lives, but because of that, that we live, and because Jesus lives, God's new world, this future world, has broken into the present. It's not just a hope that I will be raised. This isn't an individualistic sort of resurrection. Yeah, my hope is that I'll be raised. Doesn't matter about all y'all. That was a very southern phrase. I don't know where that came from. I spent a little time in nine years in Virginia, and sometimes that just just comes up. All y'all. Romans chapter 8 describes this better. For us, it fleshes this out a little bit. What our hope is—it's it, a cosmic hope, not just an individual hope. Romans eight, starting in verse twenty. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the resurrection itself will be set—or sorry—that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption I grew up thinking that God's great rescue plan was pulling all of the Christians out of this earth that was burning and on its way to complete destruction. But that's not the picture we get in the scriptures. It's not an evacuation, it's a transformation and a redemption of this world. That the God who created is the God who redeems and he's not throwing away what he's made, He's working in and through it and bringing it into a new state. This word inheritance, if we think back to what it meant to God's people, it was a land. They were promised a land that would be theirs. We are also promised a land, not in the same sense, in a little different sense. And this land is a new heavens and a new earth. What are we looking forward to? The revelation of St. John gives us a little picture. And so if you want, you can turn to Revelation 21. If not, I will read it for you. What what are we talking about? This is cosmic in scope. New heavens, new earth. Here's what the Apostle John says in Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. so we're transformed so that we can be with God and behold Him in this new heaven and new earth. God made them both. He's remaking them both. We'll remake them both. And we'll have a new bodily existence in a new creation. This seems really, really big idea. What does it look like if you've been paying attention to media in the last few days. You've doubtlessly heard this story coming from Texas of an African-American who was in his apartment eating ice cream and a, a police woman came in and thought it was her place and there was an intruder, she shot him and she killed him and it's just a tragedy. And in a statement, this man's brother, looking in the eyes of the woman who killed his brother, offered him forgiveness. And there's a lot that we need to talk about surrounding this. There are really important issues. I I don't wanna minimize this in any way or make it light. But this is a new world breaking in. This is not just some idea an abstract thing that we're looking toward, this makes its presence felt in the now. So what is your hope? We know we should have it. We're we're kind of wired for this future orientation and hoping for something. Some of us aren't sure. Some Some of us have a distortion of hope. Some of us think hope is just a a vague, fuzzy optimism that somehow everything is going to work out in the end. That's not what we're talking about with resurrection hope. Some of us are placing our hope in things like money, our work, our jobs, the security that those offer, productivity esteem and admiration from other people. What are other people thinking of me? What kind of image am I portraying? Can I have an easy, comfortable life? Some of us hope in cultural power. Some of us hope in a political party. Some of us hope that certain legislation will pass, that this campaign works, All of these, though, are like eating a Hope Happy Meal. Like they promise that this is going to taste so good, these fries and this burger. But it can't sustain us. It doesn't provide the nutrition that we need. It can't hold the weight of our longings, that we know there's something immense and something really heavy that, that we're made for. All of these things that we tend to put our hope in die; they decay. They do the opposite of all of these adjectives in First Peter. A lot of the things we put our hope in perish. A lot of them are stained by sin. A lot of them fade. And I'm not just talking to you; I'm talking to myself. How often have I put my hope, the weight of who I am, in the future? into these things that fade. Our hope isn't a Happy Meal hope. Our hope is for a feast, the feast of all feasts, the feast of the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation. We need more than these transient things. We need a sure and a certain hope of the resurrection of the dead that are found in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So we have a different kind of hope, it's a surprising hope. It's not a temporal one, it's not an escapism, I hope I can get out of here before everything crashes and burns, but the genuine Christian hope, I owe this thought to the great Anglican theologian N.T. Wright, is rooted in Jesus' resurrection. It's the hope that God will renew all things, that God overcomes corruption and decay and death, and He will one day fill the whole cosmos with His love and His grace, His power and His glory. So if I had to define what Christian hope is in a really simple way, I would say we hold God's future in the present because it's anchored in the past. We hold this future restoration now. Because we've experienced it because Jesus was brought to life from the grave and overcame death and sin and the power that enslaves us to those. And this is not just imaginary. It's not something we've made up. But it's realized. We, we walk in it, because the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us, Romans 8:11. It's not an abstract philosophical idea that's out there. It is personal, it's a person. Hope is a person. Hope in person comes from God's future to sustain us now in the present. God's new world has begun. It's breaking into the present and it's energizing our Christian life, our hope, our witness. And it's certain for us, I love this in verse five, It's kept in heaven for you, the end of verse 4, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for this salvation that's ready to be revealed. It's being kept for us. We are being kept for it, coming together and receiving this grand renewal and taking our place in it. This is huge, you guys. This is not about you going to heaven when you die. This is about God making all things new in Jesus, even now. So what does this hope lead to? Of course, joy. Verse 6, in this you rejoice. In all of this that we've been talking about, this is so wonderful. This is such great news that no matter what, we can rejoice. Now, there's a long digression here, and Peter picks it back up in verse 8 again. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him, and you rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. But this digression from verses 6 through the first part of verse 8, this is actually really important. So we don't want to miss this. It's… Peter's doing this, saying this praise, and so he's kind of rabbit-trailing like we would be when we're praising the Lord about this, and that reminds us of another thing, and that reminds us of this quality of God. But let's not miss this part. Though now for a little while, if necessary, or maybe better, since it is necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. This hope doesn't pretend that everything is fine right now it actually acknowledges that things aren't fine right now. And that's part of the greatness of this hope. And sort of the the weird thing about this is that for people with this kind of hope, suffering is actually a strange gift. Because what it does is it burns away the false hopes, the imitation hopes, the distractions, the self-confidence that we're often subject to. It reminds us of our true hope It doesn't minimize our suffering, but it puts it in context for us. And some of us, myself included, this morning, I need to be freed from some of these transient hopes, the imitations that I'm putting my hope in that can't hold the weight. So Peter's hope for the future is the basis for being consoled in the present. Much like what Paul said in Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. This hope is that God's plans aren't going to be thwarted by election cycles. They're not going to be thwarted by Twitter. They're not going to be thwarted by legislation. When we allow our entire life to be shaped by Jesus, even though we have pain from time to time, it's the way to genuine life in the present and to this glorious life, resurrected human life that we will have in the future with the new creation, the new heavens and new earth. So not only does hope carry forgiveness in the past, many of us are are familiar and comfortable with that idea, and it's wonderful. God forgives us in Christ. Sin is defeated, death is defeated, we walk in forgiveness. But we also have this astonishing destiny in the future. We're headed toward this bringing together of all things and renewal of all things in a cosmic sense of this God who created everything good and will recreate. But you know what else? This past and this future, they have meaning now in the present. They give us a vocation now, we have a job to do. And that job is, by the power of the Holy Spirit, not in our own power, to live as resurrection people between Easter and this final day of making all things new. So our lives are a sign of what happened at Easter. Our lives are an anticipation of what will come. We then, by the power of the Spirit, go to work. We put on our hard hat, and we go to work in issues surrounding justice, in issues surrounding bringing healing and hope to those who are hopeless. Refugees and immigrants, people who have been pressed down by social structures and systems. We implement what Jesus achieved in the resurrection. We anticipate what this future wonderful renewal of all things will look like. This is why that story of Brant John forgiving the killer of his brother in that courtroom is so powerful. That kind of forgiveness can only come from this kind of hope. And it can be baffling if you've heard people talk about this. Many people who are outside of the Christian faith are looking at this and they're saying all kinds of things. It, it is, how, do you, how do you explain something like that? So God's future renewed world is breaking into the present because of the resurrection of Jesus. That gives us hope as exiles. When we suffer, when we face exclusion, when we're pushed to the margins, this kind of hope is what we most need. This is actually the antidote to the despair, the disease of despair in our culture. It's the only antidote, the only thing that can sustain us cannot be a temporary thing. It can't, can't hold the weight. It has to be this cosmic hope in Christ. This hope leads us to speak. It fills our hearts with joy. It animates our witness. That's why he called it a living hope. We can't help. If this is your hope, this kind of erases the evangelism problem, doesn't it? If we really honestly buy into this hope, we are going to proclaim this hope to the hopeless. We can't keep it inside. We can't keep this to ourselves. This is what the whole world is waiting for the hope that God will put everything right. And may this true hope, this liberating hope, set us free from despair, flood our hearts with joy, and energize our job, our vocation, to share this hope with the world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening.